I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. back aboard the Starship Texas for the 106th installment of the Tex Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we talk all about Star Trek all the time. And that includes the animated series, that includes any show of Star Trek, no matter who has tried to ignore it and <laughs> not appreciate the vast array of Star Trek content that we have. And uh, we are definitely enjoying the kind of renaissance the animated series has gotten in recent years, especially today when we are joined with Aaron Harvey, who I dub the number one animated series fan. <laughs> also, thank you. Uh, author uh, or co-author of the official guide to the animated series. Yeah, that puts him head and shoulders above any other supposed animated series fans. The man who literally <laughs> wrote the book on it. Yeah. That has happened a couple times where somebody's like, I don't think you know this. And I'm like, I, I literally wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're specifically focusing on episodes uh, 12 through 22 of the animated series. Uh, if you want to check us out talking about the first uh, 11 episodes, that is available now in Text Trek 105, where we were discussing it with the other author of the book, Rich Shuppus. But um, Aaron, whenever we have a new guest on board the Starship Texas, we like to ask you, uh, how did you get into Star Trek? And I'd like to ask, how did you get into the animated series specifically? I got into Star Trek from my grandfather, who I'm now learning was a bigger science fiction fan that I had known. Um, Doctor Who even, and back in 1960-something, you know, was pretty rare for an American to be a Doctor Who fan, because he, but he traveled. Um, so... He introduced me to Star Trek, and I would sit down and watch TV, and Saturday morning, I was like, oh, it's Star Trek, and I'd be very confused that it was a cartoon, um, and then it was, and whenever I expected it to be a cartoon, it was the live action. When I wanted it to be live action, it was a cartoon. I knew nothing about how programming worked then. I'm like, of course, at 10 in the morning, it's not going to be a live action Star Trek. Um, so, yeah, so that that's, he's really got me interested in it, and then I like drawing and illustration. I mean, I, we put the book together. That was, uh, I got to actually lay it out and everything. So I was very excited about that. Um, so I just followed, you know, art and design and animation. And so it's something that I always knew about. And then in the eighties without an internet, people are like, what Star Trek cartoon show? You're crazy. That didn't exist. You know, you get a lot of like, there's no way to prove it to somebody. Uh, so it sort of became an obsession of just like, making sure that people knew it was still alive, if <laughs> it was a real thing. Yeah, well, it was something that was kind of uh, swept under the rug for a little bit. There was the uh, Nickelodeon um, 
run of the episodes, I guess in like yeah. the early 90s. Well, like, other than that, it didn't get talked about very much until the DVDs came out in 2006. And I'm people thought sure. it was canon at that point, even until the DVDs. And there was still right. a bunch of people arguing about that. <laughs> yeah. And I used to be part of that crowd. I used to be a big uh, Gene Roddenberry said it wasn't canon. The Okudas didn't put it in the encyclopedia. And it was actually listening to uh, Trek FM uh, around like 2016, 2017 and discovering uh, your podcast on their Saturday morning tracks. And I also like I heard you show up on other people's podcasts and you were always like advocating for the animated series. And I think like you showed up on like the Women at Warp podcast at one point yep. talking about how it was no, it's like actually kind of always been canon. And it would, it would frustrate Gene me. He also like, said that like Star Trek three wasn't canon or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and, so, and I mean, five. you kind of like you have to take that with a grain of salt. And also he had his lawyer whispering in his ear that he wouldn't be taken seriously if he was associated with a cartoon. But what was interesting when we were doing the research, we also found that his lawyer, who was his lawyer back then, got paid like $1,500 an episode. So I don't know why he was all upset about it, because he got paid for doing nothing. Uh, so that was... That's interesting. I didn't know I didn't know sort of the behind-the-scenes uh, politicking about the show, maybe. <laughs> the big, the, I think the big reason that it wasn't decanonized but it was just sort of like let's not approach it as it filmation was going out of business and so they're selling their assets off and at the same time larry niven who did the slaver weapon mm -hmm. uh and that's his universe was going to start an arg or an rpg or something some sort of game which i don't think ever came to fruition um so they were just like we don't really want to use these characters or this and have to go to court and deal with all that you know, we would win. It would be fine, but we just don't want to don't want to deal with that. So they asked them, you know, just just let's not bring that up. And then slowly, it sort of got reintroduced. And after Gene passed away, that sort of his, you know, push to not recognize it had kind of disappeared. And I think immediately afterwards, in one of the books, there was a philosion uh, from. Nice. Uh, the, yeah, the Infinite Vulcan, and then uh, it just <laughs> went from there. And every series after that has referenced it. Yeah, like DS9, uh, Enterprise, um, Discovery. Mm -hmm. Like they keep they keep going back to, or even Picard. We have the uh, the Kazinti are brought up. Yeah, so and they asked Larry yeah, yeah. about that. That was cool because we had talked to him as like, hey, would you be willing to have go back and revisit this in a Star Trek light? And he's like, yeah. I mean, he's he's pretty old at this point, so I'm not sure. If that's just, you know, on his plate. But uh, I'm really glad that he, you know, gave permission to, to Frakes to do that. So that was that was fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to come and talk to the animated series with us. And, um, well, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of special for me because as someone who, like, listened to your podcast and uh, read your book, uh, I have become a born-again Trekkie who now is uh, an evangelist for the animated series. And I will defend that it is as legitimate as anything else. And I, I will die on that hill. And that was, that was just like something that I flipped around on in the last, you know, three or four years. And you're a big reason for that. Well, they officially have said that it is canon and that yes. it is considered sort of the fourth season of the show. So it is... It's now recognized by by the franchise. And then you have the detractors saying, well, I don't recognize that person. So I'm like, 
whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's on screen. They've used it for referencing, you know, like I always joke that it was sort of the the Disney-fied version of what actually happened. It's sort of like if they were to make stories for kids in the Star Trek universe, maybe it would right. be one of these. So I mean, when people say, oh, you know, there's a giant Spock, or it's like, yeah, a green space hand. I mean, there's there's a <laughs> lot of things in the original series that are just as goofy. And For if sure. you had said, you know, if you'd remove that as a, a, a original series episode and then said it was animated, they'd be like, oh, that's horrible. You couldn't do that. But yeah. So I, I think you just. You find what you're looking for. You can you can either find something to say that it's not canon, or you can find something that confirms that it could be canon. And if you love the original series, if you enjoy that stuff, and you don't like the animated series, you're really missing out. And to say it's like you know cheap, low budget, not good, you're as you sound as silly as people who say that about the original series. Yeah, I mean the animation had limitations because of the the speed at which they had to do that, the years that are back then when it was made and just the budget that they had. And a lot of the money just went to the voice actors. So, you know, I always almost see it as a radio play with some visuals in some ways, because I kind of like you, that. Uh, but yeah, no, I, and I, the backgrounds are amazing. I mean, here's a, here's a background here. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> there was so a few thought, episodes when I was making my notes on these, where I made a point to note some really beautiful map paintings and uh, uh, or cool looking alien designs. You know, they're not like all every single one to like a jump out at you winner, but there's some right. cool stuff yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I was really happy with the um, the fact that there are some very non humanoid type creatures, mm-hmm. and even though uh, George Takei was uh, quoted as saying, "Oh, they only use humanoids," which I don't think he watched the show i don't know <laughs> but uh you know the survivor we had the uh the cool shapeshifter like mm-hmm. i always I, I hope that that character that that race comes back in a show somewhere i think it'd be really interesting because it feels like there's some story that you could pull in especially into like picard or something yeah with the, the romulans using a, a shape-shifting alien yeah that would definitely yeah. uh, generate some stories mm-hmm. well let's go ahead and then jump in to sure. Season 1, Episode 12, The Time Trap, written by Joe Perry. And I'll just go ahead and read off the uh, synopsis here that I swiped off Memory Alpha. Uh, The Enterprise becomes trapped in the Delta Triangle, an area of space where many starships have gone missing. To make matters worse, the ship also has to defend itself against the Clothos, a Klingon vessel commanded by Commander Kor. Who we have seen before. Yes, of uh, core of Errand of Mercy, often cited as the OG Klingon, the original. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think this... Oh, no, wait. I'm trying to remember if this is the last time that we also see the Klingons until Trials TMP. and Tribulations. The, yeah, the, no, no, the, the, oh. the original non-bumpy head version. Oh. Yeah, so he was the, the first... Uh, the first smooth-headed Klingon, and then the last smooth-headed Klingon until (laughs) Deep Space Nine went back in time. Yeah. And I think we got the third female Klingon that we'd ever seen, too. But but yeah, so this episode is like the Bermuda Triangle of Space with a kind of a twist. The other cool thing here is that the uh, name of the Klingon ship, the Clothos, is also cited in Deep Space Nine as the the ship that Kor commanded. So they carry that over. And we get to see and, a lot of other Star Trek races in the uh, 
that that council the Elysian of, council yeah. yes yeah there's like a like a pocket universe that they kind of get plunged into where um like a uh, all the other sort of survivors uh, well, don't they they like live an elongated span of time right so thousands yeah. of years they're effectively immortal and they've had to kind of make, learn to put past their, their differences past them I always wondered, like, where, you know, they have limited resources, and I, I suppose unless some ships had, like, the ability to grow food or or whatever, there's no real sun <laughs> in there. I, I could tell, you know, there's some, there's some scientific things that sort of fall apart when you think about it too hard, but... Uh, yeah, basically yeah. it looks like sort of one of those ship's graveyard type things, but they, I guess all these ships all had, like, inhabitants, and there was a council and all of that. Yeah. Uh, and, or if if not all of them have it, they've they've somehow come together into one space and all the other ships are just there scavenging for parts. It looks like. Did they, did they literally have all of the kind of what I would think of as the iconic journey to Babel races in there? So there's like Andorians. Orions. I have a list of them. I, I have a list. There is a, an Orion, Orion, Vulcan, Gorn, Kazenti, kind of foreshadowing the slaver weapon. Yep. Uh, Romulan, uh, what looks like, what could be retconned as a Zindi insectoid from mm-hmm. Enterprise. Uh, Tellarite, Klingon, Andorian, one of the plant people from Infinite Vulcan, <laughs> uh, one of the Aquans that we haven't gotten to yet, yep. uh, even though she's orange instead of green. Um, <laughs> and then we have uh, Megan, the the uh, one that can see the future. Um, <laughs> who talks like this? Who I thought... <laughs> In, in Voyager, in Voyager, the Doctor at one point he mentions there's a race called I think they're called the Yado from the Beta Quadrant and they can see the future, mm. and so I'm wondering if that's if we could retcon that as her species. Hmm, could be. It's like, who knows where this you know universe pocket universe connects to too? So it could be all over the quadrant or <laughs> over the galaxy. It's the thing you see a lot in the animated series is they cross over into other universes uh, uh, mm-hmm. with a little bit more frequency than other Star Trek shows where you just kind of have, you have the Lazarus antimatter universe and the mirror universe. And that's kind of it in the animated series. They're like, here's the backwards time universe. And here's the time pocket universe. And here's the Magus two universe where magic works. No, I love this episode for like just some of the fact that those ships the the hundreds of ships that you see in the background were mm-hmm. all ships that were their steps getting to the very first episode the pod ship it was bob klein oh. but yeah he that was the one not... where he like did all like gene roddenberry said draw it again draw it again yep. or whatever and those oh, are and the reason that it looks so great that it's populated with all these ships is those are all of those ships <laughs> so you can kind of see his process of going from you know old starfleet vessel to um, you know, organic alien ship. Just mm-hmm. by putting those all together, you probably could figure out what the progression is. So, and it's yeah, got that's cool. I, I did not know that. I guess I thought that they, I, I think I thought that they were just unused designs from the show. I didn't know that uh, it was made up of stuff from the, from that literally one ship design, just many incarnations. Well, they're one, it, yeah, they're unused. So, well, they, yeah, they, I mean, maybe. I guess so. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was like, and there, there's a couple of pretty cool ones in there. We put uh, one of them in the, I think it's in the first chapter of the book, um, in uh, the first episode, that sort of like a freighter. It was, I think, after the Bonaventure, but before it, it moved over into being alien. 
Um, and just, I think there's some really cool concepts in here. And then, uh, Mike Okuda's favorite Star Trek ship is the grain, the robot grain ship. That's what they retconned it into the live action. So that was pretty cool. We should talk about the Bonaventure. Everybody <laughs> hates that ship. So my friend Lonnie and I took it and we did a 3D version of it and sort of brought it into what, you know, if it was real, what would it look like? And right. it's not horrible. There, The pylons are a little high for what they are. But, you know, we, we sort of, you know, it's, it's a good little frigate, basically. And and you have to kind of take the timeline that they give with a grain of salt because, you know, we are now have after what, 45 years after that of Star Trek canon. So it can't be the first ship with warp drive. It can't even be the first ship with warp drive in TAS because in the last episode we have um, Dr. April as the first physician on a ship with warp drive. And like, that doesn't make sense either. It's one or the other, but um, so we're thinking it's the first ship with modern warp drive, which is what uh, Dayton Ward has done in some of his books when he's referenced it. So it's it's sort of like the first warp seven drive, and I imagine yeah. it's it's kind of like in that era of the NX01 refit because it's got bits and pieces of the refit sort of look like that. And then we learned that Doug Drexler actually had looked at the Bonaventure and kind of pulled some cues from that. So I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> we should talk about the uh, Klingons and the crew of the Enterprise having to work together and. It's kind of silly, but it looks like something you would do as a kid playing with toy ships when they yes, hook their ships lose them together. together. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that is like a little groove for the Enterprise to, to fit into a D7. <laughs> like, it's kind of perfect. The yeah. ships can be put together. It'll be form a super fortress. <laughs> yeah, yeah like that's when it could have turned into Transformers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I like I like that Core is, you know, going to stab them in the back and... The, uh... But you know, I was thinking, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's several episodes over the course of Trek and like maybe uh, was it Star Trek Undiscovered Country that, in some ways, our stories, little allegories about the East and the West sort of having to cooperate and find some sort of unity. But this is definitely one where the the East tries to stab it in the back, <laughs> the West <laughs> in the back. So it wasn't quite as, uh, I guess, uh, as idealistic as some of Gene's other stories. <laughs> Not no, that he wrote that... it. The speech that Kirk goes on to where he says that uh, it's worth dying to get back home because even with all of its flaws, it's uh, still important to them. It's, it's kind of like Jeffrey Hunter's Pike in the cage where it's like, uh, no, like yeah. I got to take reality over the. Yeah, this is like kind of peaceful and kind of cool, but I, I need the real deal. Yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting because I, th- I think you expect the Klingons to do that anyway. So I. I, I feel like they were sort of ready for that in some in some way. Yeah, and then their their scheme of like uh, Spock acting weird and all chummy to, and yeah, like putting yeah. hands around the, like that was very strange. Uh, shall we move on to episode thirteen? And I always say this one wrong, but the ambergris element. Ambergris. Ambergris. Yeah, ambergris. I can never get that right. It's Written by uh, Margaret Harmon. <laughs> yes. And uh, this one, uh, the crew of the Enterprise explore a submerged culture on a water world. This is basically where Spock and Kirk turn into uh, Aquaman and the Submariner. (laughs) It literally uses stuff from the Aquaman filmation uh, show. There's some scenes where they're swimming. Yeah, it was kind of cool. They used the same swimming macros, I guess, if it was a computer. Um, And just... uh, copied it that way 
sufficient. Yes. This is all we get the aqua shuttle too. Yeah. Is awesome. And the the aqua shuttle is a neat design. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because like the shuttlecrafts in the animated series are so like when you see mud go into the shuttle bay a few episodes ago and you see all yep. those cool shuttles, it's like, oh, I want to see those shuttles like flying around doing stuff. We'll talk about the Copernicus in a, in a moment and the slaver weapon, but yep. People complain it's like, oh, that could never fit into the t- yeah. The Delta Flyer couldn't fit inside a Voyager either, but it was there. So I think there's sometimes you just have to kind of give things a pass. Basically, uh, Kirk and Spock are transformed into these aquatic life forms, and they meet the uh, species of the Aquans, who uh, that have a very fitting name, as they're quite literally aquatic people. Yes. <laughs> it's all starting to come together. <laughs> Very convenient. Maybe it's the universal translator. It's just finding something that it's like matches. Hey, that's true. It just might just be very on the nose, that translator. Yeah. In Discovery, we have Kelpians who eat kelp. And it's yeah. like the same amount of logic. So I was like, really? Come on. You know, <laughs> I was thinking that uh, in, in Star Trek, usually if um, if the transformation isn't something that's immediately like life-threatening, like, you know, they're aging or whatever... That a lot of times, you know, it's meant to sort of bring some sort of insight or cultural knowledge or whatever. And that is kind of what goes on here. I mean, aside from I, I think they must have mainly done it for cool visuals, but but it definitely is like it allows them to kind of like go and sort of try and bridge the gap with this culture, which happens to be having a very Earth like uh, what do you call it generation gap between the sort of the elders and the youth culture who are sort of more yeah. open minded about the, uh, the strange visitors. Are you saying old people are more racist? <laughs> I'm saying they're saying old people are more racist, but also yes. <laughs> no. You know, I thought that Margaret Armin, who wrote this episode, she also wrote the Lorelei Signal and a couple of TOS episodes, the games, Gangsters of Triskillian and the Cloud Miners. I think one other. I like everything she's written. I mean, she must Syndrome. have been fairly young. Paradise Syndrome. There we go. I like all those episodes. Um, even the Paradise Syndrome has kind of not aged all that gracefully, <laughs> but I still enjoy it. I thought that she must have been, like, under 40 when she was writing this. And, like, no, she was, like, in her 50s when she's writing yeah. that, like, uh, old people are dumb and, like, young people know better. <laughs> but I, I think that's kind of, like, a good message in, in a way. Like, I'm in my... I'm in my mid-30s, and I kind of look at how, like, people older than me vote compared to people younger than me vote, and it's like, yeah, I kind of have to uh, side with the youth on uh, a lot of this stuff. <laughs> well, that, the, the 60s were like the, which this was just getting past, was like yeah. maybe the first time I think the country became sort of acutely aware of, like, even without judgment, that there was a, you know, very stark difference. Of not not became aware, they knew it, but um, but that it became a, some, a topic of conversation in the national spotlight. Um, and certainly Vietnam would have uh, put that, uh, you know, front and center. Yeah, it definitely felt like it was sort of a, a fragment of the 60s in some ways, like at the end in the you know beginning of the 70s. There was a, a very kind of a hippie type feel to it. Well, this kind of also, also this one has an environmental message, to, you know, more yeah, or less. Yeah. As I was watching this episode, there was a line that I wrote down, and it's kind of it's lensed through sci-fi terminology because they use what do they call their sort of commandments or whatever ordainments. ordainments. Yeah. And one of them, uh, I get, I think this is one of the younger ones when they're uh, trying to figure this situation out. He says, 
uh, ordainments are useless in times of turbulence. Only knowledge will help us. And I was like, hey, <laughs> there's a there's a message that I feel like is as timely as it was in 1970 or 71. Or no, I'm sorry, 73 or 74. It's it's kind of sad that some of the stuff keeps coming back and we don't seem to be learning from it. You know, when I, right. you know, 70, the 1973 cartoon can tell you. <laughs> Uh, things like, the, on, the wisdom of the Aquins still shines through. Yeah, but how many Saturday morning cartoons in the '70s will still have these timely messages decades later? Like this is a uh, a little bit very uh, few of them. Yeah, this is a little bit more sophisticated than the uh, the shows coming on immediately before or after it. Well, and if you're talking about racism, uh, some of the shows just the way they treated people of other races. Cartoons were just like a little cringy or a lot cringy, you know, like even like Hong Kong Fui and stuff like that. Where right, it's just like, for sure. Yikes, okay. Where I, it was great because you saw, you know, Sulu and Uhura and everybody just treated as a person. There wasn't like some sort of special thing that they were given because, you know, that was the black character or the the Asian character. So and they was... added a few, you know, we get mm-hmm. Lieutenant Gabler, we get Ensign Walking yep. Bear, who we'll talk more about in a moment. Oh, and this episode also gave us the uh, the Sir Snake, and it kind of continues a trope in the animated series of there's a lot of monsters that are either kind of like bird or bat based, or they're kind of like serpent or dragon based. Yep. I think they look pretty cool. I mean, like it's a, it's a slightly weird maybe fixation, but I like the work their <laughs> designers did. It reminded me of some of the sort of stuff from like I don't know, I guess those Hanna Barbera cartoons like the Herculoids or uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, Johnny Quest type creatures and stuff. And I did like this episode visually, by the way, even if it's mm-hmm. kind of on the sillier front of things, maybe. And it's it's kind of a fun breakup of the usual away team mission. And it was one that used to bother me when I was a, a TAS hater. I was like, you can't have like Kirk and Spock turn aquatic and go swim <laughs> around with fish people. But now I'm like, why? Like this, it's not that crazier than anything any other show would do. And it's kind of cool that we could see like a big budget idea. Like, yeah. uh, you know, like a live action Aquaman movie was very expensive. Ask James Wan. So like <laughs> instead they, they just did this as a, in an animated format, which is kind of the it's, only way we could have had it. It's probably no weirder than Janeway becoming a lizard. <laughs> yeah, that I don't know if that's the best comparison. <laughs> that we make, but uh, so no, cut to the chase not, with not a yeah. not so great example. Well, instead of a uh, lizard people, we should talk about cat people and the yeah, slavery yeah. weapon. Yay. Uh, written by Larry Niven, the uh, writer of the story it was based on, the soft weapon. and uh, Pretty esteemed is, sci-fi writer. Yes. Uh, yes. And like like one, legendarily so. A group of Kazenti divert the shuttle Copernicus and retrieve a newly discovered slaver weapon. That's a very weird synopsis, because if you don't know what a Kazenti or a slaver <laughs> yeah. weapon is, it doesn't tell you anything. Not a very good No. This is my favorite episode of the animated series. Really? I put this I put this over yesteryear. I like this, but yesteryear wins, and also I, I take a few points off for certain reasons, which I'll get to at the end. <laughs> How about? Well, it's also the only episode not to have Kirk in it. Yeah, like, think, and that think that, that is actually one of the very cool things about it. Yeah. Not that I don't like Kirk, but <laughs> it's cool to give Sulu and Uhura more spotlight. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, people, people, if they're watching the video of this, they might see Aaron's Kirk is a jerk badge and just think, like, what kind of campaign is he mounting here? Um, and, and in fact, it is a very specific episode reference. He may also be mounting a campaign against Kirk. I don't know. But it goes to the, uh, what was the episode? The, not prankster, but the, the practical, the practical joker. joker. Yeah. We'll yeah. get to that. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, no, the Kazinti, if you remember from the time trap, they they looked a little different, kind of mm-hmm. more like a fuzzy teddy bear kind of thing. And it was because they had a reference image given to them that turned out to be fan art. So they didn't yeah. really want to continue with the design that wasn't necessarily based off of something they did. So they sort of revisited the description of the Kazinti and sort of did it based on their own own ideas. Yeah, that one of the time trap looks pretty weird and he's not wearing a shirt. I don't know if he's wearing pants or not, but then you can say that about <laughs> all those council members. I don't know if they're wearing pants or not. They're all kind of like chest up. Like, this like, is just uh, like, like our pandemic era of uh, yeah. Zoom chat. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the design <laughs> that they have here looks really cool. And I like that they're just kind of like ugly. They kind of have like that rough uh, yeah. look to them. They're like and, scraggly uh, cats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially so, the uh, the psychic, the uh, the, the guy telepath, who, uh, yeah. the telepath, yeah. He they just um, hired. <laughs> they're all unhappy neurotics, which I think <laughs> a telepath would actually be kind of like stressed out and miserable because you have all yeah. these other thoughts in your head. Well, yeah. I, I feel like pound for pound, this episode just has more creative ideas than any other episode. There's, uh, I feel like it's beyond the shadow of a doubt. There's just some cool notion or throwaway line that's that's a neat premise about a reveal about the Kazinti, the slavers, this ancient race that yeah. um, doesn't quite necessarily fit Star Trek thing, but, uh, but like canon, because didn't they supposedly like once in eons past rule over the whole universe, galaxy? Yeah, it, the galaxy, but it was a billion years ago. So it right. would and then, like everything. Was it in overthrowing them that it kind of set like the galaxy back to zero, like there was like so much loss of life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've had those ideas you know, there's the cedar, the, the people who, um, you know, populate everything we've got in Picard, apparently the, uh, you know, me- the biomechanical, the AI probably mm-hmm. have destroyed right, some right. galaxy, you know? So I think there, there's precedence for it. Uh, it just depends on where in the timeline it fits. So it's like, it, it could be like, what is it, you know, uh, extinction level event for Earth. It's kind of the equivalent of that for the galaxy. Yeah. And right. Starts over with a new. It would be crazy form. if they ever did reference this on, say, another episode of Picard or something like that yeah. from the remnants from before the slaver wars or whatever. I yeah. think it'd be cool to do that. It'd be it'd be so easy. It wouldn't be that different from bringing up the Iconians or the. Right. Who was Maybe it they'll bring it up in their far flung future. Uh, whatever's happened in uh, the next season of Discovery. Um, so, so let's just quick yeah. say, say say like one or two plot things. They yes. introduced the slavers who were this very powerful race who had these what they call them slaver boxes, stasis yeah. boxes, stasis boxes. Yeah, real simple idea, but they are basically are a box where there's like their time does not flow within it, and it's it's kind of a cool premise. I don't know exactly why they've done this, but they've got all these boxes, or not all of them, but they are they have some of them scattered throughout the galaxy that have either like weapons or technology in them. And you can, sometimes if you find them, it's a good thing. And it like catapults tech <laughs> forward. And sometimes it's like a trap and like you blow up the world or whatever. Yeah. And uh, supposedly what just, the gravity plating is based off of something they found in like yeah, a flying belt or something. And, yeah, I think yeah. so. 
Yeah, that, that totally fits into canon. You can easily say that, like, oh, yeah, like, early Vulcans or whoever, the first people to, like, really popularize gravity plating, like, found it in a, in a stasis box. Yeah. And so our our exploratory crew, which is what, Kirk, uh, I'm sorry, Spock, Uhura, uh, Chek- Sulu. Uh, Sulu. <laughs> It'd be interesting can't if Chekhov was there. Yeah. Can't say the names. Those three, they find one. <laughs> And then are sort of lured into a trap by the Kazinti who have an, like, what, an empty other one? Yeah, because the boxes, the only way to find a stasis box is with another stasis box. Because it's yeah. sort of like a, a compass or a, you know, it, it tells you which direction to go find the next one. The slave that idea. seem like they really like messing with people. Yeah, I was say, that doesn't seem like the best system if you actually want. Maybe they weren't, weren't meant to be found. I don't know. As, as a dramatic device, though, it's a lot of fun because the whole yeah. episode ends up being about the Kazinti wanting to uh, test the captured weapon out, uh, the old, this ancient slaver weapon. And like, so it's all sort of guesswork as to what they meant to do with it, what their culture was, yeah. how they would have designed the weapon. And and, uh, and it's it almost like the episode works on its own rules, even if you kind of don't know if, if the slavers and their, and their the stasis boxes seem a little weird, it works as, as this really cool dramatic device. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the best written episodes of the animated series. It re- really utilizes that 24-minute format. You get so much story. Yeah. You get so much character with the Kazinti and Chuffed Captain and the Telepath. They, you, you instantly figure out who each one of them is just in like that very little dialogue we get from each one. Yeah. I feel like they have the coolest ship name, too. The Trader's <laughs> Claw, yeah. The Trader's Claw. Hell yeah. And just yeah. even like some of the like some of the little dialogue stuff when the truffed captain is using the the weapon, he's looking at the telescope. He's like, "Oh, finely built telescope. They were fine <laughs> builders, these slavers." Just like the fact that they would take time to just uh, you know show you his thought process, things he would appreciate, stuff like that. I thought it was yeah. really cool. Obviously, like Larry Nevin has put a lot of thought into the species he created, and he was yeah. able to to squeeze that books. into every. Every word of the script has some yeah. of that Kazinti backstory packed into it. There's also the fresh meat. And I just think if you could use that for Amazon Fresh, you could just like deliver stuff without <laughs> and you can just put it in a stasis box and deliver it to your door. <laughs> deliver yeah. any type of food. Yeah. Hot pizza. It'd just be like frozen in time right there. Um, the, the slavers can definitely <laughs> repurpose their uh, conquering nature for a, for a uh, capitalistic society. Capitalism. Exactly. <laughs> I like the idea that the Kazenti like they hate the uh, the thought of vegetables because they're cats. Yeah. They're carnivorous. Right. They're 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 super carnivores. <laughs> Which they, is interesting because my cat eats grass, so I don't know what <laughs> what type of cats those cats are. I don't know if your cat is like my cat, but when my cat eats grass, it's a prelude to him throwing up. Oh. <laughs> They do seem so... to use it as a cleanse. True. Um, but yeah, the Kazinti are like the hardcore side of cats that, that's very predatory. And yeah. they, so they're like, they're culturally, they think uh, Vulcans are lame because they, uh, because, <laughs> as vegetarians, and they don't really go oh, much beyond assessing them than the, 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 their dietary qualities. And um, Sulu, uh, or Spock, I think, instructs Sulu to like, think vegetable eating thoughts to throw <laughs> off their telepathic scans. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Mm, I feel no salad. pressing need to talk to an eater of roots and leaves. <laughs> it's like if Beautifully ever, phrased. If ever Beautifully have like phrased a, and... a vegan that won't shut up about like their diet and they're trying to like convert <laughs> you to their veganism, just tell them that. 
<laughs> yeah, you ought to just hold on to that, fathery. But I'm also like... That's hilarious. <laughs> don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. But, like, I'm not, like, the world's biggest cat person. Like, uh, I know I, I know that's very like, oh, now, to but... say. <laughs> but it's, it's like, I kind of like the idea, like, the Gazenti is, like, they're kind of, you know, when cats are assholes sometimes, yeah. like... That's, that's what the Kazinti feel like to me, is they're kind of like, oh yeah, like all like that asshole side of cats, that is this bad guy <laughs> Star Trek race. <laughs> no wonder you know, this is your favorite episode, Fathery. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I did want to bring up, though, like, although I thought they were really well thought out, I thought that, um, I, this is one or two of my criticisms here, I thought that their kind of sex, their, their particular sexism is uh, a little tropey, like even by then yeah. we had seen many uh, sort of very patriarchal races, and the way Spock reminds Uhura, he's like, do I need to remind yeah. you that their women are dumb animals? It's a little blunt and kind of harsh. It, 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 I didn't it, like that. It was a little mansplaining to somebody. Yeah. About, like being like, yeah, OK, you're not really making a good impression with your comment. <laughs> <laughs> not being very supportive of your crewmate. What I liked here was that when Spock does uh, mention to Uhura, like, uh, yeah, they're all dumb animals. So if you don't remind them that you're intelligent, they'll probably think you're a dumb animal too, or something like that. But the, why, what I like about it is that after he says that, they cut to Uhura, and she's just kind of like sarcastically like, "Oh, thanks." And, yeah. and I like <laughs> the fact that they gave her like that eye roll kind of reaction yeah. to it. I, yeah. It, it, to me, like it felt like they were acknowledging that, like, yeah, that's obviously like a problematic viewpoint. And then they, yeah. that's how they kind of. Turn that Thanks. against the consent. Thanks very much. Whatever she's, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, Star, Star Trek, uh, the, the animated series is not, um, it doesn't have like always the most sophisticated dialogue, but I like sometimes with their, their humor and like sarcasm, they definitely do go a little bit farther than other, for sure, other shows of the era, as far as giving people some nuance and a little bit of sarcastic sting sometimes that I, and I do yeah. like that. And uh, the ship, I'm, I'm a ship person, so I can always bring up the ships in the episodes. Right on. Uh, the uh, Trader's Claw, the apparently Dor Dorothy contacted Larry and, and apologized for, you know, for everything being pink and the ship being pink. <laughs> and when we talked with Larry, he's like, I didn't have a problem with that. And I was like, I went back and I had just, I reread Ringworld before we spoke with him. And they actually describe the ships, which was written like two years before TAS, as mm -hmm. pink. Oh, so wow. I'm like, like it, it's supposed to be that color. So he's like, you know, and there's a lot of those colors on the planet and stuff like that. He goes, so I didn't have a problem. He goes, it, it seemed to fit the universe that I was creating. So I'm like, okay. So it's it's really interesting who remembers what about, um, you know, Dorothy will say one thing. Because it, I think for her it was sort of it was still Star Trek and exciting, but it still was a job. It was sort of sure. this was the the stepping stone to because she she left after the first season. She was going on to she wanted to do live action TV. She this was just sort of an interim, you know, step to her further her career. Um, and other people were just like Star Trek. This is this is my life and this is what I really want to do. So I think the memories that people have of like you were saying before, if it's just a job and you ask somebody 50 years later what they like, I don't know. You know, it's like <laughs> I colored something in and that was all I remember, you know, so. Yeah, Rich yeah. mentioned uh, in the previous episode that the voice actor, I think, for young Spock in yesteryear mm -hmm. was uh, like, you know, it's like we, we sort of all felt it was a moving performance. And he was like, ah, I was just saying the lines. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also uh, did like some of it was just like I didn't get any direction. I was I right. was, you know, a new 
I was, you know, because he was a kid. He was like, I'm new to all this. And I'm like, all right, I'll just read it. And he goes, I was a little, I think it's because like his slight nervousness and mm-hmm. everything just made it, made the lines that he was supposed to say yeah. sound genuine. And Had then the fact that they just used yeah. the recording without telling him, <laughs> it's like, nope, we already got it. And like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that has to be confusing for like an 11 year old. I can't even imagine. Yeah. This also, the, before we move on, this is the only episode where anyone dies in the animated series. <laughs> yeah. Because Zinti, they get blown up. Like, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's got a kind of a I don't want to say a sort of a dark heart, but a little bit of one. And uh, I think uh, you know, as when I was a kid watching the somewhat sanitized cartoons of the '80s, they were they they liked their action adventure, but for sure they like made a point. Like I guess in the the '60s and '70s, Johnny Quest could maybe kill off a bad guy, but weirdly, GI Joe couldn't in the '80s. Right. And um, and so I, I remember I would see shows like episodes like this, and I would be like oh man, that's hardcore. This is cool as hell. And like, it's a slightly juvenile take on it, but like, it's not like it's done juvenile in the episode. It's just kind of got some bite to it. And uh, yeah, I did appreciate it. Ultimately the, yeah, the Kazinti destroy themselves with this. And at the very end, they're sort of like, well, that's what happens. Ha ha ha. And fly away. And you're like, wow. Okay. That's a little harsh, but all right. Mr. Spock, I think you're getting more human every day. Oh, but uh, Spock definitely like grew as a leader compared to Galileo Seven to this. And I kind of like yes. that you see him yeah. as like a better commander. He's a step closer to being Captain Spock in the Wrath of Khan. Yep. I mean, honestly, like uh, were were the show to have gone on, I would have loved to have seen more episodes like this that had that would zero in on smaller groups like that, just to yeah. just see how they work in different in different uh, uh, mixtures. Yeah. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, maybe. There you go. <laughs> let's, talk a, let's talk about uh, episode 15, The Eye of the Beholder, written by David P. Harmon. Beaming down to a planet to search for the crew of a missing ship, the crew is captured by its alien inhabitants. And this is the one with the slug elephant zookeepers <laughs> yeah it's a it's a it's a classic kind of star trek and other sci-fi uh, premise of a of a world that's a sort of alien zoo that they they have to puzzle it out over the course of the episode but that's the premise am i correct this is the guy who was the writer for uh, the deadly years and a piece of the action two pretty damn cool episodes of yes i believe TOS. so yep um this has a very cage feel to it too yeah in some ways for sure I, I liked this episode more than I expected to because I'm like, oh, God, it's another zoo episode. <laughs> uh, but um, I think the fact that, that we kind of see the landing party making these what I thought were pretty smart deductions and sort of uh, using their uh, – the, the follow-through was what set it apart. Is, is the way mm-hmm. they figure out that, uh, that they're in a zoo by the, the weird terrain placement and all that stuff and how yeah, and how what they do to get the attention of their zookeepers – and how they telepathically, they the fact that they know that they're being scanned, they use it to manipulate them. I was like, oh, these are all kind of cool ideas. Yeah. And, and I, I like love when like, Junior the, gets beamed up. Yeah, I was say that's that's one of my favorite parts, just like Scotty and this like kid, basically. <laughs> this is one of their very non-human aliens. Yes. Yep. I'll take that, George Decay. <laughs> <laughs> But not very uh, unearthly, I guess. And it's got it does feel like something that you might find in a 
Amazon jungle or something like that at a much smaller scale, obviously. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. They, they, um, <laughs> I think I feel like I've seen gifts of this floating around online of the thing where they're being carried by them and it yeah. can't, kind of can't help but look funny where they're just kind of just standing there having normal conversations wrapped up in a tentacle gliding <laughs> over the landscape. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. And the, what got me is I, I want, I've always wanted to see the Ares, the ship that the, that is in orbit, I'm assuming somewhere. Um, that they beam down like and why did they all beam down like i know it must have been like a small research ship or something but it feels like there's protocols for them to have not done that yeah that was the one thing where i'm like that ship isn't very smart it could have been like the size of the copernicus from the slaver weapon it could have been like that small long-range shuttle i want an eagle moss of the copernicus i have been very much trying to get anyone to do models of the animated series stuff so there's that may happen one day. Um, I think it will. You know, uh, they're they're in the zoo or whatever, and the aliens. I think do they yeah. think faster than humans? Like they're like yeah. really way advanced. But Kirk and the crew figure out how to get like the kid alien to give them. Uh, is it the communicator? Right. Yeah. By like medical kit. Yeah, yeah. They need the medical kit for because they've got that injured person, um, and um, they. Uh, Right, so they think about it until uh, they just think about the medical kit, and they so that the kid will think it's like it's food or something for them, and he hands it to them. I was thinking about how like pets, although not of human intelligence that we have, they know how to manipulate us just like that. My cat, mm-hmm. when it wants when he wants food in the morning, he will knock over things and make a, a ruckus until I get up. He understands on some level how to manipulate yeah. me. <laughs> That's a Kazinti move. Moon <laughs> That's a, that is uh that is not strictly a cat's thing. I have seen that from all animals. They are smart. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, they they problem solve and they remember patterns. It's small uh, children. <laughs> it is kind of funny though that like they were that lady that other crew member was gonna die and these yeah. supposedly very advanced aliens didn't really get that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. That or they were just so busy with all of their other. I mean, yeah, obviously they were meant to, and, you know, there's there's a a frequent sci-fi idea that some race that's as advanced to us as we are to insects, and so the same way we wouldn't worry about, like, oh, there's an ant dying over there, they were probably like, eh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you have a sick ant in your ant farm, then, you know, what are you really going to do about it? Although they only had three or something like that, so it was just like, they are not not six, I guess, when they got everybody else. I would give that ant a med kit. Yes. (laughs) And uh, And then beam it up to my ship. Is yeah, it that's... weird to y'all that Kirk says a captain must follow the book when he's like the kind of the ultimate rule breaker? Oh, you know, they were kind of it's interesting is that every once in a while it feels like they were kind of a little bit of two minds about that. You know, in the original um, version the original, of uh, yeah. what do you call it? Um, uh, most famous uh, sitting on the edge of forever. Uh, in Harlan Ellison's screenplay, uh, Spock had to be the cold person who stopped either, I guess, Kirk. From saving, uh, what's her name? Her character's name? Edith Keeler. Edith Keeler. Uh, but as it happened, they had it as Kirk stopping McCoy. And that seems like that's weirdly Kirk kind of being playing by the book. Mm-hmm. And and like I'm like, you know, here Harlan Ellison had clearly told a story that conceptually was diametrically opposed. It was like, I will sacrifice the whole world for love. And yep. this here was a Kirk who was like, Nope, she has to die. <laughs> and I love City on the Edge of Forever, but I certainly can see the uh, as as it as filmed. But I, I see that, and and I think Kirk 
you know, the walking pile of books, Kirk, that we also see described oh, versus yeah. the kind of the lover that we come to know him as in some ways um, that sometimes they are of two minds on Kirk. They may have just done it because it was convenient. <laughs> I have had a hard time imagining the walking pile of books version of Kirk. I'm like, there's nothing that ever, like, he might be really smart. He might be like, but there's nothing that strikes me as like the nerdy type or whatever. There's just like that. It doesn't feel like that's a, a an honest appraisal of, of that character. He would have had to have really come out of his shell in college if that was the case. Like, yeah. like night and day. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, episode 16, The Jihad, written by Stephen Candle, who also wrote, I guess you could call it the Mud Trilogy, the three previous <laughs> Mud episodes. This is a, kind of a different type of story than the uh, the Mud stuff. The Vidala, the oldest known spacefaring race, summons Kirk and Spock to recover the Soul of Score, a stolen religious artifact that has the potential to ignite a holy war across the galaxy. And boy, oh boy, would you not call an <laughs> episode the Jihad in this day and age. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I, might be somebody's first introduction to the, what that word meant, though. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I would imagine so. Did they define it in the episode? Does somebody say they might start a jihad or holy war? Yes. Which, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was exactly thinking that they right. probably did. I, like, I learned this word from reading uh, Dune novels in a pre-9-11 ah. uh, sure. world. Before. It's all over Dune. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is going to be an unpopular opinion. And, I, you know, I fully admit that Yesteryear is a much better episode. But this is probably my second favorite episode of the animated series. Interesting. Bold words, sir. <laughs> I love that it allowed itself to be a Saturday morning adventure cartoon. That, like, yeah, there's definitely some comparisons to, like, Herculoids, but also, like, <laughs> some of the stuff that would come later in the 80s, like uh, He-Man or even, like, Thundercats. I love, mm -hmm. like, this cast of colorful characters. You know, each one looks like they could make a toy of them. They get in this cool vehicle. It looks like you could make a toy of that. Yeah, and... <laughs> they actually mentioned that on the podcast. Fun. Adam and I are like, that was so toyetic. It's like, if it could just toyetic. be... Yeah, that's a term. Uh, so if you could just, we always wanted somebody just to do like a 3D printed version of or something of like that, like just pretend it was a 70s toy. But the 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 Vidalian Land Rover or whatever it was called. Actually, it, I don't know if they ever did this. I, I don't think they did. I know they made a lot of Star Trek figures in the 90s, but specifically based on the animated series, kind of colorful look would be kind of a fun, that'd be a fun line of toys. Yeah. Really uh, especially, and then, yeah, they could have like play sets or whatever. Slaver weapon playset. Yeah. With what do they call it? Or the, this one could have like the web? volcanoes, the Mad Planet. Yeah. Like, you know, add uh, soda, baking soda, and, and vinegar, and you can have like your own <laughs> volcano. <laughs> because this, Gene uh, Roddenberry uh, wanted volcanoes. Yes. This was kind of like a. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Um, this was kind of like a. Also, I would say slight Mission Impossible vibes. There was like mm -hmm. a bunch of different specialist aliens who were sent on this mission. I was not a hundred percent clear on why they needed to do the mission with a small specialist team like this, but it, I know they were trying to keep it on cover undercover. Um, right. But it also felt to me like a D and D game where you put together the party <laughs> and there's a rogue and there's a wizard yeah. and there's a, you know, and there's a fighter. I actually, the score to me felt very Klingon or what became Klingon in TNG. Just the whole idea of the trying to bring back the warrior way and stuff like that. It was, it yeah. had elements of that to me. Yeah, for sure. That was um, it's a it's a it's an interesting notion, and I think I would I would have found it fairly uh, 
a potent, especially if I had seen it at a younger age, there's this guy who was like wanting to start a war just to redeem the honor of his, what he had seen as like a slipped out of their pride race. I, I, yeah. I forget exactly yeah. what, why, basically, basically they had become a peaceful race and he just thought that they didn't have any more victories to win or what was the deal? What was the next generation episode in season one, Heart of Glory, where those Klingons are like, yeah, we need to be like warriors and fight the Federation yeah. again. It's kind yep. of like that. Yep. Except they and, wanted to fight everyone in the galaxy, I think. And I like that uh, uh, Char was his name. Yeah. And he betrays them, so it has like that that cool melodramatic plot <laughs> point where it's like, oh no, he was a traitor all along. You know, as a kid, I loved stories about traitors. <laughs> and But like, I think part of it was like, I sometimes liked if there was some heroic streak to them. So Boromir in Lord of the Rings is like the ultimate example. Um, and, and I was like, oh, his character resonates. He's like, he's trying to be noble, but he failed. And, and, and there's at least something of that to, uh, to the guy in this too. Yeah. And he's the same Birdman species that we see in yesteryear. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he's the same no. Birdman species as Boromir. Because <laughs> I thought they, okay, Aaron Harvey's correcting me. I thought they were both. Uh, the same species. No, yeah, and I, 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 the Aurelians are what are in uh, the yesteryear, oh, and okay. these are the score, and they're they look like they're related, and I think in some of the books that people have like said they're from like the same offshoot species, but I do not know why they didn't just make them the same same species. That would have made more sense. It would have been like also, oh, we already saw one of these people. It was a he was a historian working with Starfleet. You know, they're they're peaceful. They're part of the Federation. And then this person's trying to reignite that. I think that would have been more impactful. But they just made him a different species who looks slightly different if you look at the models next to each other. <laughs> well, that, that's fitting because uh, Sword, the lizard man, also looks uh, kind of like a Gorn, but not yes. quite. You got a tail, like the right? Lizard people at the uh, at the in Bem <laughs> as well. Yeah, um, I I feel sorry for Sword because. He's kind of cool. He's like, he's the one person of this group I'd want to hang out with. Like, he's not a traitor. He's not like trying to like bang Kirk every five minutes. He's yeah. Kirk gets harassed in this. Yeah, he's yeah. He, he's not a, a coward. Memories. But he doesn't do anything. He helps Kirk push a rock to like block it, some lava, and that's yeah. kind of like all he does. When they're they're climbing into the fortress, he's like, I'm not built to climb on this type of stuff. He's got a <laughs> he cool voice though. He's got a cool voice and a cool look. And in a way, and he, and he acts tough. And in a way, that was like enough, like certainly when you think about this as like an 80s adventure cartoon style, yeah. to, that was enough as a kid for me to say, I like this guy. I would want that toy. Yeah, that's the a, thing. The it's He-Man like, character that you want because he's just like, yeah. his, his tail would smack you or something like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, that said, I don't think I have the fondness that you do for the episode, Father. It was all right. but <laughs> For me, well, I like it, it feels how weird it is. Yeah, it is weird. To me, it's also one of those, like, this was only 25 minutes? Okay, it feels like an hour and a half. I don't know. There's something that it, it drags a little for me. It's like, I don't know if it's just... There's a lot of slow point. advancing lava. Yeah, there's just a lot of slow <laughs> advancing, period. And if you think about it too hard, you're like, what? did he just lead them to where it was? Why couldn't he have just flown off on his own and then hit it? Or whatever? Like, There just seems like a lot of... I don't know. I also really would like to have seen them play with the whole idea that like the landscape seemed to shift or and there was something with time and 
Because when they get back to the ship, they've been gone for like a minute. And it's just like, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But it was a sort of a throwaway bit. Yeah. And the score, or the, not the score, but the, uh, the Vidalian looks an awful lot like the, uh, the cat doctor in, um, Lower Decks, which oh, I know yeah. is supposed to be a cation, but she looks way, she's hunched over and more scraggly, looks way more like that. <laughs> Doc, Dr. Tiana. Yeah. Which uh, is like a Vulcan for some reason. There's a lot of cat stuff in the animated series, too. You have Emress and you have the giant cat in uh, oh, yeah. Return to the Shoreleave Planet. You have yep. the Kapalan power cat we'll get yeah. to in a minute. Yep. Sci-fi writers are cat people. But yeah. The, the Vidala themselves, if I ever... Like, I, I don't run RPG games. I just kind of casually dabble in playing in them. But if I was going yeah. to run a Star Trek RPG game, I would start it with the Vidala are assembling a crew of people to go on some yeah. type of, like, weird mission. I may have to use that sometime in the future. Yeah. <laughs> she could, they could also have a, a Vidalia as the DM <laughs> like, or something like that. Yeah. The the character in this episode, M3 Green, is that right? Yes. Yep. He was voiced by uh, triple writer David Gerald. Oh. Yep. Which one was he? The SAG card. The little, the little, the little green bug. The cowardly rogue. Yeah. yeah. Who... I kind of love that uh, way that he played on the, the voice that he used where he's like yeah. so pathetic. It's like, ah, oh, I just hate this, this wimp. He's this spineless coward. He's like, just leave me here in the blizzard. Let me die. <laughs> I like. And him, apparently um, he did not like the voice. He wanted to, he was like, well, he goes, I finished recording it. And then I was like, oh, I've got a much better voice. And they wouldn't let him do it over again. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sure. Yeah. Everything was just like, got to keep it moving. Yeah. Um, I, I did. I, I, there was. Nope, there's, Orion's fine. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> typical of the um, uh, of the writing on the show is like there's a little bit of nuance even in the sometimes larger than life characters. And so at the end, when he's somewhat to some degree proven himself, he's like he's like I'm not even scared anymore. He's like, what does he say? I just want to. <laughs> does he just want to die? Or yeah, he's like, just leave me. Just let me die. He, yeah, yeah, he's basically suicidal. At that just, point. Yeah, he's kind of. But 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 it's 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 an interesting bit of nuance to have him at least show an arc and move move past it, and yet yeah. still not not be able to move past it. That's that's interesting. Yeah. And I just, I just love that they're like, no, we need you. We won't let you die. <laughs> Shut no up one, and pick the lock. <laughs> Kirk isn't like you have so much to live for, or like no, like uh, you need to fight for life. He's he's just like no, we need you. Come on, that's I'm not a, gonna let you die. I mean, of the many team type of stories, that's more closely uh, close to like a dirty dozen kind of approach. Which yeah, uh, I'm sure all of those thoughts at least were somewhat on the writer's mind. All those different that Mission Impossible it feels and like a lot else. of tropes glued together. Yeah, that's like yeah. there's bits and pieces. But yeah, no, it's it's a fun adventure, and I feel like this is. If they had like the hour format, that they could have probably done something like a subplot or something. It, like if they had something to cut to, if like cut to the ship or something like that. If there was something back and forth, that probably right, like a little bit of a B plot. Yeah, and that's that's where I think the few times that this could actually that the animated series could benefit for a slightly longer format. Um, I think it does a really good job of with taking the half hour and cutting out some of the stuff where if you had the original series, it's like five minutes of Kirk fighting. And you're just like <laughs> necessary. So if you shave all that stuff down, it kind of, you get the heart of the story, which these seem to be. Well, shall we talk about episode 17, the pirates of Orion or Orion, if you want to say it wrong, <laughs> like they do here, <laughs> written by Howard Weinstein. The, oh, this is the first episode of season two, I should say. Yes. 
While Spock lies ill, Orion pirates hijack the drug shipment desperately needed to save his life. The one time when Spock is not immune, where he's actually like <laughs> yeah, the only one who's who's biologically compromised. I like that the reversal, the subversion of the uh, the Spock trope. Yeah, this is also where we get a lot of, a lot of Doctor McCoy racism towards Vulcans. I think. <laughs> yeah, like at the end, it's like you have to admit it. Being a human would have been better. And it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, if you like were to just like replace like being white or something in there, yeah. then it's like, oh, Doc. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's uh, but, a little icky. Yeah. yeah. But, sort they, of... but you also see how much they actually care for each other at this one. So it's kind of interesting. It's got the the, the different uh, spectrum of, of his emotions towards uh, Spock. As a premise, I, I like the like straightforward suspense of it. They were they they're in a hurried you know mission to meet up with a ship that has among other things that it's carrying this cure for Spock, and it gets basically the ship gets jacked by the Orions who get kind of fleshed out a little bit. Uh, I guess kind of keying off like. The, the the end of the dude in Journey to Babel, right? Yeah, because yeah. uh, he like kills himself, uh, or or does he? Yeah, he does kill himself in that. Um, and they like made that like an Orion cultural thing. Like if they're gonna fail, yeah. they kill themselves. Which I, I actually did not know that the, anybody had like really picked up on that. I did they do that in Enterprise when they showed up? No, it's kind of so. this is kind of like the weirdest presentation of the Orions, and it was something that. Sort of when weird I, colored skins and <laughs> yeah like they're not quite like the, the fact that they're called orions and <laughs> they look wrong and th- <laughs> i kind of want to think of them as like another species but they're clearly the same people that right. were in journey to babel so you right they get like name the southern that. continent or something like that they're just they're, they're slightly different orions <laughs> they have an accent they they, they have different skin color you know, I wanted to – this is a weird thing to mention maybe, but I wanted to mention that the thing that Spock has uh, – was it uh, choreocytosis or something like that? Yeah. It's one of those things that – sound. you know, for the animated series where, you know, really just all they needed to say was he's got space sickness. Uh, I, I appreciate when they go that extra mile and have something that actually sounded very real. It reminded me of watching the uh, Trouble with Tribbles and how, like, Quadro Triticale has that <laughs> – strange but almost authentic sounding you know name you might have for a strain of grain right. <laughs> and then i i just it's those little those little details are kind of nice sometimes and you know earlier you were talking about how the show is so different from what comes before it and what comes after it this was being the first episode of the second season was showcased in mm. they used to do those like uh cartoon showcases on friday nights to show you what was coming up on for the new yeah, cartoon the, like the Saturday. preview night yeah and this was it had uh, Jimmy Osmond and he was like a carnival barker and he was like <laughs> singing these songs and you you had um, it was like Sigmund the sea monster. And it's like, oh, man. And it, yeah. And then it's like he's like th- he made some rhyme up about Star Trek. He's like and Star Trek. And they kept to it. And it's just like he's going to die if we don't do this. And it's like and then he starts reading off like the Babel conference rules and stuff. I'm like, well, that's a tonal shift. And then they come back and it's like, and it's the monsters. Da, da, da. Like, so it's just this sandwiched in between. It's like, that is the weirdest episode to highlight. I did so, not. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a little bit, bef- it was a bit before my time, but I, I did not know that they were doing those preview nights back then. That's actually kind of cool. Cause I do, I remember fondly looking forward to those nights, Yeah. but that's, uh, that's interesting that they, uh, was it like, 
do you think it was overall, even though it didn't fit the episode, was it a good scene to show? Or should they have shown something like with more action or something? I think they probably should have shown something with more action. Maybe maybe the what the, on the surface when they're wrestling. Yeah, you know, something Yeah, something more towards the end. Something that wasn't so plot heavy. I right. mean I you know, obviously adults were putting this together, so maybe they were trying to, you know, signal to parents that, hey, here's something you can watch right. as well. But but yeah, I it just you watch it and you're just like it feels like you're just thrown into like your brakes are put on and then the, you take off again and just like okay. So Right. It's kinda um, like the cliche of Star Trek in in some ways versus Star Wars where it's like, oh, yeah. oh this is the one where they sit around in conference rooms and talk. <laughs> and like unfortunately yeah. that is what they showed. <laughs> yeah. But his life was in danger, so that was something. Yeah, yeah. that's true. There's there's a pretty uh sort of dramatic quality to that. And I did like the, uh, by the way, the look of the Orion ship in this. It reminded me of, like, what would become, I guess, 70s and 80s video games like Space Invaders or Galaga or something oh, like yeah. that, mm-hmm. where they look like those little sort of head-on, two-dimensional mm-hmm. views of, like, little ships that look almost like bugs. <laughs> kind of like yeah. the ship in uh, Hell Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth that we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, although that ship's crazier. It's it's, it's pretty cool. We, we should talk yeah. about how season two worked as it was only six yeah. episodes because they would just cut some, they would just drop a new one in to reruns of the first season. And that's how they did cartoons in general. That wasn't just Star Trek. So that was that yeah. was pretty much a lot of those series back then. Because oh, they didn't think kids would actually understand that there was a rerun. They're like, oh, they won't know the difference. Like every kid knew the difference. It's like, I've seen this already. <laughs> so, and it was also, at this point, Dorothy had left uh the and the director had changed and they were given like bob and his the group of people who are doing the illustrations kind of were given more free reign they 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 almost just became the showrunners as far as like putting things together and if you notice the ships become a lot more kind of out there uh mm-hmm. there's yeah in the last episode you have like an asymmetrical design where it's different on the left than on the right which I think none of those things would have happened had there been a lot more oversight. The the Dramian ship in Albatross, you know, all these things are just really interesting that compared to what they would have been in season one, I think. Huh. Yeah, I kind of feel like the quality drops a little bit in season two. Just things seem just a little bit off. A little bit. There's also some new scene. They aren't reusing the animation quite as much in places, which is interesting. Oh, because I guess they had like a new budget with the new season, so they could, they could I, yeah do a bit more. Probably add some more stuff in, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, y'all want to talk about the the next episode? Uh, mm-hmm. would have been season two, episode two, Belm, written by David Gerald. Speaking of the the father of the triples himself, Ari Ben Belm, an erratic observer of the planet Pandro, secretly watches the crew of the USS Enterprise to determine whether the Federation is ready to open diplomatic relations with his advanced species. This is a weird episode. It is weird. <laughs> yeah. This is part of like that season two stuff. It's like, oh, this is not quite as good as season one, I don't think. This was originally I... going to be an original series, a TOS episode. So this was something huh. that was slated for live action and shelved and then david brought it back for for tos or tas i i briefly looked at like the notes on memory alpha and there was a fair amount of them and it seemed like the script went through a lot maybe like roddenberry would yes. want this and then other people would want this and like david gerald maybe rewrote it a number of times or there was not really a godlike creature i don't think 
in the, <laughs> the first drafts. But you know, like Gene liked that uh, for being like a secular humanist. He had a lot of uh, thoughts about <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, overwhelming or, uh, you know, big powers in the sky. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of with him. And yet, uh, yeah, the use kind of bordered on like fetishistic maybe. Yeah. It just, it felt like, Oh, this is a very similar. And the, the, uh, the creatures are the, uh, the alien God sort of felt like um, the companion from mm-hmm. metamorphosis. The series. Yeah. Metamorphosis with, uh, with uh, Cochrane. Yeah. It's like, Ooh. it kind of looks the same with like the, rainbowy light effect yeah so i'm wondering if they're somehow related (laughs) there are a fair number of glowing gods in star trek or god-like aliens yeah Uh, as the episode was going along i was uh, trying to figure out like what their moral (laughs) was attempting to be and i was like is this is this an allegory of vietnam as they get trapped in the jungle and all of their technology can't allow them to to overcome these aboriginal people and then they have to and then they do the thing where they like they're like all right we're just going to leave these people alone and i was like i don't think that was intended maybe but i think it's too many revisions and there wasn't actually anything that is like it's it's a rorschach test at this point i think you get to find what you can pull out of it something once the once the god showed up i was like i don't know what's happening i'm just gonna stop with the analysis when I, I talk about what, the title character, Belm, Bam. who I, yeah. I hate him. Colony creature. <laughs> I, I, I hate that creature. I, I he's hate very the, frustrating. Yeah, hate and I know do you. No. he's it's meant Yoda, to be kind of, um, <laughs> he's meant to be annoying at the beginning when he like beams them into the water. But then like he jumps down there and his body starts splitting in two. And it's like, it's so weird. And then like his arm flies off and his head flies off. And you can tell us it's like all the different, uh, you know, parts that they would animate separately. Like the way that he's split up, I wish uh, that he was like more of like a goo monster that would. Well, like the way it was described originally off. was not like that. I mean, he didn't. They didn't have yeah. floating parts to him. <laughs> it was like it, it made more sense the way that it, he came apart. At the end, when he says, "I guess I'm just a big failure, and I need yeah. to basically die. I need to like separate my my colony." Yeah. Uh, I like I wouldn't have talked him out. Like Kirk is talking him out of it. I would have let him like go through with it. All right. That's Where's your, your humanism, Fathery? What did Trek right. teach you? Nothing. Hey, he would live as a bunch of different separate things that hopefully would never reform into like a big <laughs> asshole like that again. You know what? He was to... successful as like a pickpocket. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. There was kind of a recurring theme through all of these. It's like if you're a failure and you're not human, you will somehow want to kill yourself. And then we have to stop you from doing that because your life is worth something. So that yeah, was, I don't know. Was that like, uh, I mean, not to keep bringing up Vietnam weirdly, but it had to have been on the mind. And was it just like a national bit of a malaise there? You know, I was just thinking about how MASH came out in that era. And of course, it was about the Korean War, but the theme song is called Suicide is Painless. Yeah. yeah so, I don't I, I, maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that kind of recurs as a motif, but it does. Yeah, that could be interesting that it's like so... so under the the subconscious of the whole culture that and it isn't until like decades later that you can go back oh that's why this was right thing. right so yeah, yeah not not awesome. necessarily a cognizant plan but just sort of something that was yeah. percolating in the subconscious it does kind of annoy me how many times star trek and i guess the animated series itself has to rely on these type of like prideful warrior races like 
the Kazinti had a bit of that, but you know, the Klingons do that a lot. The Romulans do that a lot. And it's like, Oh no, like my, yeah, the score is like, my, my reputation has been injured and this is a great disgrace and I've dishonored my people. And they kind of, they kind of lean onto that a lot to where like everyone who's not Federation kind of comes off as that. Well, you have to blame Japan for making the samurai so fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) because they have endlessly influenced uh, us (laughs) there is a little bit of like japanese and the kazenti how like they're not allowed to have a military they can only have like a police force that's kind of like post-world war ii japan but um let's move on to the the next episode the practical joker written by uh, chuck menville after passing through a strange space energy cloud the enterprise's computer gains an artificial intelligence that is relentlessly bent on making practical jokes on the crew. <laughs> was that, it the sentient? voice sounded weird, but it was was that Major Barrett throughout? Yeah, yeah, okay, I believe just so. Just kind yeah. of yeah. putting on a voice. <laughs> <laughs> a I think this episode was kind of a slog for me, but I did like some of the weird, uh, like seeing George or hearing George Takei and some of those other ones laugh. Just yeah. doing his, just like. <laughs> He has a weird laugh when they're high does, on the, the nitrous oxide, and he's laughing <laughs> yeah. in their holodeck, which is cool yeah. to see the, yeah. the rec room is like a oh, primitive yeah. holodeck. Yeah. There's a lot of elements in the show that are interesting where they don't really all make a whole great episode together. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, Father, you had, I think, I'm sure mentioned before uh, the, uh, the the rec- recreation room as a proto-holodeck, but I had never seen it, and I was like, oh, wow, it is literally exactly the holodeck right down to problems occurring as a, yeah. as a plot device. <laughs> the very first holodeck episode is a holodeck. Uh, error Gone problem. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded and me it of has the, like a little, you know, the, the not arch, but the thing that comes in the middle, if you like call, uh, like oh, the right. pedestal or whatever, like the, mm-hmm. you see that in Voyager and a couple other things. It's just like, it's got that. And you know, it runs on tapes apparently, but, uh, <laughs> like, uh, Okay. It looked um, um, the visuals looked cool, like when they like reprogram it and like, like these blue skies appear. I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, that's nice painting. You know, they just uh, they, it looked it it conveyed the holodeck idea a good yeah. uh, was it like twelve thirteen years before it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And Gene had talked with uh, like the the father of holography, um, and he had said something. You know, it's like, oh, I want to do something like that, and that's how that got incorporated. But he had also talked about wanting to do it in real life at one point, having some sort of room on the Enterprise that did that, but they just didn't have the, the effects budget. Yeah, I think sure. But I, think I they, feel like it was... They wanted to do that in season three at one point. Yeah. Before, before Jane stepped away from the show, they had talked about doing that in season three. I don't, I don't know what episode it would have been used in, but... Yeah. You know, um, uh, structure-wise, this kind of reminded me of... Um, uh, what's the episode where uh, Kirk is split into his evil half? Oh, the enemy within enemy within doesn't that have as the B plot that Sulu and those guys are trapped down on that planet below. Yeah. uh, Freezing to death. Yeah. Yeah. Weird dog. Yeah. Yeah, And they had to like use the phaser to heat the rocks and all that stuff. Anyway, just reminded me of it. The sort of the, uh, the ticking clock of the, of sort of a survivalist thing. They're like, we got to get this solved. (laughs) The the Romulans were back in their D sevens looking cool. Yeah. This is the last time we see Romulans until the neutral zone in in television. Uh, right, right. Uh, but yeah, I always always like seeing even. those guys in there. I noticed that in the end, so so the much of this episode, just for anybody who hasn't seen it, is the computer 
messing with them at first and these sort of increasing problems of it as like they go from like kind of just silly Joking. practical jokes of like food fell on me and stuff like that to uh you know gravity's not working life support's not working and um <laughs> i didn't notice that they much like the tribbles they kind of pawn the problem off on their enemies and it's a yeah. little bit of, it's a little bit of a <laughs> kind of ending <laughs> like <laughs> How often do they do that? <laughs> no wonder the Romulans and the Vulcans don't like. I mean, the, yeah, the I wouldn't be. Don't uh, like us. I yeah. wouldn't be wild about the Federation. And of course, this is the episode that gives us Kirk is a jerk. Yes, <laughs> right. They uh, uh, yeah, what, the replicator ta- uh, like or I, assuming it's like he gets his fresh clothes from somewhere. Right. And um, we're assuming that it's some sort of replicated thing, and it, it has Kirk is a jerk written on the back of his shirt. Which is great. <laughs> he's like, is that the point where he's like, it's a little bit like when Scotty, the Enterprise is insulted and uh, trouble with Tribbles, where he's like, it's gone too far. Yeah. And they're all yeah, turning on each other, it. like, you did this. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's all funny. Haha. <laughs> oh, wait, no, this is not funny. So, okay. <laughs> we, have to, we have to solve this. Speaking of Scotty, the, uh, the food slot throws food yes. all over him, kind of like what happens to Tilly in the yep. uh, short track episode. We were like, we did a, a side by side, and like they even look kind of the same food slots oh, wow. and stuff. So pretty cool. Oh, and when Kirk is trying to trick the computer, when he's like, "Oh no, please don't fly us yeah. into the cloud," he's That's overacting. Yes, you can tie that into the wrath of Khan when he is overacting there. When he's when he screams Khan, like people always reference that, but they forget that Kirk is putting on a show for Khan. To make right. him think that he is deserted there because he had that whole scheme with Spock of the, how the Enterprise is going right. to come around and pick and him just up. And just to clarify, you're yeah. talking about uh, Kirk, the character. You know, Shatner is also known to be a larger-than-life actor. Is the yeah. charitable version. Some people would say an over-actor. But um, he's certainly a larger-than-life presence. But yes, yeah. Kirk was very deliberately misleading in these cases yeah, yeah, yeah. kirk kirk is an overactor himself <laughs> yeah and just like but he's uh, doing it he he's he's doing he's it with doing it uh, intentionally i guess yeah <laughs> it's also sort of an echo of the you know kirk talks a computer into dying sort of you know a yeah. variant of that okay well let's talk about the uh, the next episode albatross written by dario finelli following a mission to the planet dromia Dr. McCoy is held prisoner accused of mass genocide caused by a deadly plague committed 19 years earlier during a previous expedition. When the Enterprise attempts to investigate, it too becomes infected. Uh, this is the one that felt the most timely, in my opinion, where everyone is uh, coming down with this uh, disease. <laughs> but we don't want to blame really a. Cool uh, shades of- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they want to blame a notable physician for it. Hmm. What what relevance could that have? <laughs> they like the Dromians. They're a cool design. I, yeah. I agree. I, they're some of my favorite aliens, especially the ones that are the um, the survivors. But yeah. also, I thought this had some of my favorite paintings, both their home planet with it had these really vivid, beautiful colors, like almost a little psychedelic. I always kind of like when they do the psychedelic colors. Yeah. And then they, the, the uh, plague-swept world of Dromia 2... Uh, it's really cool looking. Like uh, I feel like somebody had got to have some post-apocalyptic fun with those yeah. skeletal buildings and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Uh, the uh, the Dramians too had like a a lot of just 
sketches that led up to that. So you can kind of see the evolution of where they started from. And there's like a little bit of that 1970s fantasy sort of element to it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Be gnomes maybe or something like that. But then they kind of like evolve. And I really like what they ended up with because it feels humanoid, but like different, almost Kelpian in some ways as far as as some slightly skeletal elements to their face. And also they, they have that sort of weird thing where they're, they're, arms and or their legs and maybe their arms like maybe just the legs elongate at the bottom like they have larger from the knee down their their yeah. their, their legs are larger yeah um but uh, but yeah you know the other thing about them is that um although james duhan and like michelle nichols voiced a lot of aliens this one i thought was a i don't know who voiced him but uh, was it commander demos demos How Blue it? it was one um, of the filmation uh, heads yeah, he kind of stood out to me as having a serious presence to him and not kind of affecting a, a sort of a I'm an alien voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has a cool he has a cool kind of commanding voice. And I thought his character had some, you know, a, a decent bit of nuance to it. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this with Rich a little is that I sort of like how uh, th- these episodes where essentially whatever the antagonist might be during the episode, there's usually it's usually based in sort of more of a misunderstanding and they come to some accord at the end. And this is one of those cases where, okay, yeah, they were they were maybe behaving a little bit heinously with their sort of kangaroo court and all that, but um, uh, but but they do, you know, I, I think this guy lends them some sort of depth that I, I don't know if the writing necessarily showed it, but but he he brought it to the character. I really like this one. Like to me, like it felt more like a season one episode. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it, yeah. this, this one stands out in, in season two for me and. Uh, I love that it ultimately becomes a story of Spock trying to save Dr. McCoy. Yeah. McCoy, who is, even he himself is filled with some doubt uh, that reminded me uh, just a little bit of like the the one sort of notable scene in Star Trek, was it uh, five, I guess, where he's reminiscing about not being able to save his father. And Mm Uh, here he's like, maybe I did screw up. Maybe I did accidentally cause this plague. He's like, obviously so such a moral guy that, and so, that he's willing to like try and look into himself and see if that's possible that he screwed up. Right. So I, I you know, I, it's, 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 it's a fairly deep idea, even if it's conveyed in a kind of brisk way. There's also the, when they're having their McCoy and, and Spock are talking it's like, you get the almost line. It's like, it's like, I'm a doctor Spock. A doctor. <laughs> and you're like, what? But you're not a what? And you didn't fill it in. It was just like, I lo- it was like that. I almost feel like they did that on purpose because you're just like, yeah. Oh, weird. <laughs> that, that shows the you how serious. Pause. That shows you how serious he is here. It's like he doesn't have time to like think of right, some, yeah, something else. He's, but, but it does have one. Uh, I, I thought a good. Uh, this would be a great one to take out of context. Where is it? Um, I guess it's uh, Spock. He's like Captain. You're blue. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just uh, just uh, that's their visual descriptor for the uh, the other plague. <laughs> oh, we got, like yeah. the the color changing. Yeah, the the Saurian virus. So it's tied into uh, Linus from Star Trek Discovery, who sneezes on people in the turbo lift. So yeah, put a mask on it, Jesus. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> Kirk saying set up an immediate quarantine. So we've got like you know quarantine speak and yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is. Uh, it's it's eerie to watch episodes like this and uh, and 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 have it relate so notably <laughs> to to the present. Uh, pandemics like- and, and and big viral outbreaks. 
at least for most of my life, uh, barring sort of Ebola outbreaks, which broadly did not intersect too strongly with the United States, it felt like something like I'm like, oh, well, that's something that's that's an older problem or unfortunately a problem for for countries that are less prosperous than the United States. Um, but, but, you know, it's like, oh, there's the pandemic of 1917 and there's been outbreaks here and there and Ebola breaks out here and there around the world at times. But, you yeah. know, it does it, in some ways, you know, I have not in 40 plus years had to deal with that. And then suddenly here it is. And all these old stories, stories that were written by people who might've been closer to the pandemic of, uh, 1917, uh, you're like, oh, no wonder they were utterly mortified and terrified of these ideas. <laughs> this also makes me wonder with there being such a recurring trope of Star Trek dealing with like these medical issues and a lot mm-hmm. of like, oh, there's like some widespread viral outbreak or something like that. And we have to find a cure. Will future Star Trek writers even want to continue these types of yeah. stories now that we've kind of just lived through it? Yeah. It's a, also, not for a little bit, not, I bet. I think there probably will need some reflective. Yeah, let's retire time. it. Let's retire it for a while. And also let's, now that this has happened, anything that we've been looking back on this time period, you know, none of the characters ever mention this or refer to it because it didn't happen. So, <laughs> you know, there wasn't like the there's World War Three, the eugenics war, you know, the the COVID-19 outbreak. You know, they don't they, there's no sort of big vibe maybe that's all just lumped together with world war three in their brain it's just sort of like what part of that that leads up to the war or something let's move on to these uh final two episodes we have a season two episode five how sharper than a serpent's tooth written by russell bates and david wise the enterprise encounters a being that once visited the ancient people of earth i uh mentioned at the uh the top of the show how the animated series uh, often brings back uh, flying winged bird-like <laughs> monsters or snake-like serpent dragon monsters. This I like is when they screech. This is the combination <laughs> of both. When yes. we get uh, Kukulkan, who is a, a winged bird snake monster. <laughs> and I think him is like the final boss of the animated series because this is so near <laughs> the end. I, I remember I as a kid, I would of, say I was cuckoo for Kukulkan, like, like <laughs> Puss thing. I felt bad for them having to say that over and over when Quetzalcoatl is uh, yeah. kind of a cooler sounding name, <laughs> or easier anyway. I yeah. like Kukulkan. I like to say that. I It's a tongue twister for me. <laughs> my uh, my girlfriend's annoyed at me because after watching this recently, I keep talking to her about Kukulkan. I, t- I told her that whenever <laughs> we go back to Star Trek Las Vegas, I want to cosplay as Kukulkan. Man. <laughs> That would be a great, like, multiplayer, like, a two-person, one of those costumes things. Oh, yeah. We get our the, Native uh, American crew member, mm-hmm. Ensign yeah. Walking right. Bear. So he had he been, no, he hadn't been in a previous episode. It was just nope. for this episode, so he could kind of be the expert on the topic yes. somewhat stereotypically. Well, he's better than the expert was for, for Voyager, at least. <laughs> so, yeah. Actually written by a real Native American. Right. So. That was pretty great, <laughs> and I didn't I didn't know that until I was poking around about it uh, um, that uh, that that was the case. Yeah, and I, I think the like the original drafts didn't really have that in there, but since they were both working as a team, one basically he was a writer, Russell Bates, and David Wise was more of the animation person. He understood how that worked, so they worked together right. as a team. And um, I think that's when 
David was like, we should really bring in some of your history because that's fit Star Trek so well. And it's kind of interesting. And that's mm-hmm. when that kind of diverged. And then I don't remember exactly how the first draft was. Uh, David Wise was going to he was looking for he had like the original sketches that he drew of, of the ship to give mm-hmm. to the writers because this is what they had in their head. And unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, Russell Bates also passed away while we're making this book. So these two, you know. I'm glad that we have the interview from David in here, and but it's just, it, you know, you get to know these people after a while. You know, you talk with them on Facebook. That's one good thing about social media is just sort of even that playing field of getting to know the people who create the things that you like. For and, sure. And I imagine yeah. there's some people who might have been sort of actors or writers who might have been marginalized a little bit or just kind of forgotten in the shuffle <laughs> of time. Who can who can be rediscovered or acknowledged yeah. and 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 honored for for their contributions? Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people really wanted to participate in the book because it just like they felt that that portion of what they had done had just sort of like dropped off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Especially when you got Gene, like, oh no, this isn't isn't canon or whatever. Right. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you so much for the book and like letting the <laughs> stories get out there. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. <laughs> That was not meant to be a like a self-advertising <laughs> no, no. thing. Uh, but no, I I did it. That's why I did the podcast. Cause it was just like I don't want these stories to just disappear as the people disappear, because then you know as as we know, you ask one person something, they don't like you. It's it's best to get as many concepts and or I mean uh, stories of what happened as possible, so you can kind of glue together the middle ground in your head of what actually happened, because. If you leave it down to one person, it's really biased. For sure. Even though they're not trying to be. That's just how it turns out. You know, um, this episode, Fathery, um, they, um, I, I assume, was like influenced also by that kind of, um, uh, what was it, the, the Chariots of the Gods sort of popular Yeah, which mm-hmm. I don't think time. Gene... Gene didn't like that idea that like aliens taught us how to build pyramids and make the Mayan calendar and stuff. He mm-hmm. he always wanted to promote like humans as being like these uh, capable, uh, intelligent beings that figured all this stuff out on our own. So I'm not really sure how this got in <laughs> under the radar unless al- almost the last episode, if he was just kind of so backed off at this point that he didn't take the time to give any notes back or or what happened. It, yeah, I we know more about like the first season of his interaction. It's like I honestly I kind of feel like the second season was on autopilot. And and even David Gerald says something to the effect of like Star Trek scripts at that point were writing themselves, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like they might have just been. Yeah, that's good. I don't know. That's not very Gene because Gene likes to change literally everything because obviously Bem was, you know, really picked. So maybe he picked his battles. It was just sort of like specific ones. I mean, it was still kind of that Gene Roddenberry idea, like from Who, Who Mourns for uh, Adnaeus, uh, of mm-hmm. out- outgrowing a sort of, you know, a, a, a mythic a past and outgrowing the gods. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's why he liked it. That's why he let this stuff slide, I guess. It, that's probably. Instead of Chariots of Fire, I was thinking, uh, speaking of, of gods. Nick- Nickelodeon, but, but uh, Legend of the Hidden Temple. What's that? That game show they used to have on Nickelodeon. Oh. Where, like, kids had to go through like all it was very like indiana jones type yeah. uh, okay i don't think i particularly scenarios. saw this but i probably vaguely remember it. i i've seen i i think i can think of shows like that kukulkan is just like a really weird design and it's very awkward to watch like this uh conversation with a uh giant <laughs> snake bird 
<laughs> who will occasionally hiss at the the characters. Don't yeah, try and force animal. your anthropomorphism on him, fathery. <laughs> it reminds me how of in uh, the Jihad, the uh, Vidala cat person, another cat in Star Trek: The Animated yeah. Series. But when she would like roar to like turn on their like little Random. holographic projector, yeah. it was it was so weird and jarring. And I actually oh. like, like it there for whatever yeah. reason. The uh, Kukulkan hissing that Kirk <laughs> and McCoy and Scotty and Walking Barris just kind of weirds me out a little bit. But the I do like the use of the Capellan power cat here. Yeah, because we have to have we have to have cats. We have to have bird monsters. We have to have. Snake monsters. This episode has all three che- checks, all those boxes. <laughs> and Capella, because that was in the original series, uh, and then it'll be in the next episode. We have a flower from Capella. Uh, Capella. Yeah, weird to do that back to back. Yeah. They, you know, uh, one of the things that this is uh, like, like a lot of the season two episodes. This one is a little, eh. Uh, but yeah. uh, I, I did, uh, I did think it was, if nothing else, fascinating that the when they're in these sort of. Um, holographic uh, ancient city or whatever uh the stuff that they have to do uh was very much like a modern video game puzzle or yep. a 90s and onward video game puzzle where you have to line up statues and the yeah. light bounces around and amplifies and all that that's legends of the hidden temple they had that, to that's, like, did they do that kind of stuff yeah like those types like okay i thought places. they were just leaping over leaping over water and climbing there, there's like a puzzle element to it too oh, okay. I, I didn't really they should bring that it. back then i want to i, I want to watch that show i want to be look in it up show. on youtube all right i will i'm sure there's clips this is, of it. uh also a little bit of the the move along home from uh, deep space nine <laughs> yeah. uh i'm the only person I'm not the only. I know one other person who likes that episode besides me. I do. I don't mind. I'm not. That's my unpopular Star Trek take. I'm like, I don't hate it. I mean, I like the concept of it too. It's sort of like these people just interact with the world through games, and they're like, why don't you? Like, they don't understand that you don't understand it's a game. Like, why are you all freaking out? They're not dead. I mean, you know, like, right. I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, this is also the first uh, time that Star Trek won an Emmy for anything. Yeah. Happened. Weird that this is the one that won the yeah. uh, the Emmy for Star Trek, but uh, I'll I'll take it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it was I think up against uh, Captain Kangaroo and I believe another filmation. I think it was Fat Albert. Oh, um, yeah. And Captain Kangaroo was, got owned. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's the story that uh, Lou's son was walking around and had heard that Captain Kangaroo had actually got it. So Lou Scheimer's like, well, I'm not going to get up. And so he just drank a lot. And he was like <laughs> sauced. And they were on a – it was like the first and only time it was on a boat in like New York Harbor. They did uh-huh. the daytime Emmys out there. And they're like, ha, ha, we have you all captured here. Like it felt very weird. Like the I watched them in the opening. It was just like, oh, okay. Um, and so he gets up and he's just like he – like the woman who like hands out the awards and stuff just sort of like guides him up there because he was just going to fall. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and I think he forgot. That's when he forgot. Um, Al Sutherland, who directed all the season one episodes before yes. Bill Reed came on to do season Bill two. Reed, yeah, See, I did my homework. I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> so now we'll talk about the final episode of Star Trek: The Animated Series, season two, episode six, "The Counter Clock Incident," written by Fred Bronson, who yes. was credited as. John Culver, because I think I talked about that last week, but he was an NBC publicist and thought he had to use a, a different name on the credits. Um, but he's a 
he's a cool dude who uh, uh, talks to me on Twitter. So that's oh, awesome. Nice. And he's uh, a musician. But I mean, music is his big thing, really. Oh yeah, right and, he, the... and he wrote some uh, TNG as well. Yep, the game and Menage Troy. Yeah, uh, in this episode, when the Enterprise enters a negative universe, former Captain Robert April saves the ship, and as the crew age backwards. <laughs> so is this the first time we ever hear Robert April, or had that been used in any of like the the novels or anything before this? It had been used in drafts, uh, and if you were reading, like, the behind-the-scenes books, like the, what is it, The Making of Star Trek or whatever, you would have seen it there. But otherwise, no. This is the first time that he was fleshed out as a character. Well, it's fleshed out as the character gets here. <laughs> but, yeah. And, the, and then mentioned again in Star Trek Discovery. Yes. You know, uh, he... And the Kelvin universe, too, so we got him there. His sort of storyline in this is something that that Trek has explored a fair number of times with with age is you know just the the notion of being put out to pasture or being pasture mm-hmm. prime. Uh, Kirk himself has embodied this in at least a few movies, and uh, um, but but in a, in a way I, this was one of the earlier cases uh, of it, I guess. Yeah, it's weird. The retirement age for an ambassador is seventy five. When yeah. I think we clearly at some point see like admirals that look older than or at least close to seventy five. Well, Father, they were just getting out universe. of the sixties. They didn't trust those old people. <laughs> oh yeah, was was the retirement age determined by the uh, the Aquan youths? <laughs> yeah, that might be. Yeah, no, I think even like in nineteen seventy three, like somebody who was seventy five could still be like you know a president or something. So I don't know why. That was a weird age to choose. I think they could have said like 95 and they were actually, you know, they look great for their age because it's, you know, the maybe future. Yeah. Maybe they were just like the kids of, uh, you know, that were, we expect to be watching Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. To them, that's... 75 might as well be, uh, you know, Merlin the magician. Uh, yeah, just exactly. Although, uh, ironically, I, I should say that because Merlin, of course, historically, or like many versions, aged backwards. And that's backwards. That is go. the premise of this episode. Yes. In fact, when they uh, recently announced that they thought they found a negative universe, I was like, ha! And I, you <laughs> it's know, on. Tweeted, and then they're like, no, we didn't really, because that was just, you know, badly interpreted data. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love the kind of whimsical sci-fi here that was is probably more associated with something like Doctor Who than Star Trek, but the the white void with the black stars and the yeah. the novas that birth suns and just the uh, all of that like the ships moving backwards. It's kind of a ridiculous visual, it's, but it is it's kind a, of it pop is science cool. fiction where yeah. like if you scrutinize the details, well, it doesn't quite make sense, yeah. but like. As a pop idea uh, of just like inverting expectations, it's kind of neat. And you get and, the dramatic ticking clock of uh, everyone is going to age backwards into babies. And <laughs> I, I like when they when they do start turning into little kids, and then you get like that one shot of of them as babies. <laughs> yeah. It's like it, it makes me think like Star Trek babies <laughs> instead of Muppet babies. What, also, um, baby I, Kirk was like losing his hair. Like, <laughs> like tell, tell the adult Kirk was going to need a toupee. But the way baby was, Kirk was that was the wrong. animators messing with him? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> well, if if you age backwards, like a newborn baby is 
either very close to completely bald or True. actually completely bald. So hopefully if you, you do age backwards, that you point. still get bald. You know, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, this, uh, the, the previous episode uh, had a Shakespeare quote in it. And there's a, there's a famous Shakespeare speech about the seven ages of man from, I think, as you like it. And, uh, they, they refer to in that in the seventh age, the final age, they refer to old age as the second childhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, that they, they kind of they cover both ends of the spectrum in this. You got the the sort of I don't want to say doddering because he's supposed to be in command of all his uh, faculties. But but he's an older guy. And then you have yeah, literally become kids. And why are they aging so fast in it? I forget. Not explained. OK, it's like, oh. Uh- yeah, we have Bob 25 or... minutes to do this. Because, so. <laughs> like, uh, presumably, that... like, the other inhabitants of this would, you know, take if they're if they are born at 75 and die at zero, they still span 75 years doing it, right? Yeah, uh, that had actually been explained in an earlier draft and like edited out. It was something to do with the their proximity to like a black hole type thing. So it was time was. Not only was it going backwards, but it was also relative, and it was just doing it was okay. like accelerated. Sure. Um, and you know, I can buy that in the, in this kind of. I mean, you know, that's actually a, a pretty thought out response. I would have bought it if you just said, "Yeah, it's just a weird effect of going from one universe to the other is that it accelerates it." But that's actually a pretty cool version. Yeah, I like that. I, I wasn't aware of that. A little bit of relativity thrown in there. Yeah. So this is what I think is weird, is they said that they couldn't do environmental suits in the animated series because they didn't want to animate, like, all these additional character models yeah, for everyone. they made babies. Yeah, <laughs> like, explain that one to me. Because <laughs> all that they would have the done is the environmental suits once, and then they could have reused it, because they reused everything, across yeah. the board. Just, like, swap out the face, whoever's, yeah. like, under the helmet. Yeah. True, yeah. Father, you saw what happened. They used babies once, and the show was over. <laughs> <laughs> that they is what happened at the very end <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah it is, it is cool to actually see Robert April because he's typically just like a name that you yeah. see in you know the novels and stuff his, his wife yeah. is prominently featured as well oh yeah yeah, yeah. she was the uh, I guess the chief medical officer on the Enterprise when he was captain that would be cool <laughs> to see them you have like this uh, husband wife duo and their captain and doctor yeah. kind of like what the, the novels did with uh, Troy and Riker I guess in the Titan novels or Picard and Crusher, even. Yeah. They could have been uh, the uh, Nick and Nora of, of the spaceways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fred said that if he had wrote it today, he would, instead of calling her, like, you know, Mrs. April, they would have, like, Dr. April. Like, Dr. Right. McCoy should have called her Dr. April. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, looking back now, that's not something that, that we that makes sense. would have done. But yeah. it was I did notice she had this very raspy kind of old lady voice when she was 75 ish or whatever she was. And then also when she was like 25, <laughs> she's just got that sort of, what is it? Uh, Lauren Bacall or, yeah, or that sort of husky, husky of voice. Yeah. yeah. Robert April seems like he's got a bit of a, of a British accent, which seems to be like, they bring that into books and stuff like that. So whatever, <laughs> whatever Scotty was, or James Dewan was doing uh, kind of like continental a- a- accent or something. No, two things about the end. One is, again, this is another case of using the transporter to fix everything or, like, restore people to their original age, like the yep. Lorelei signal 
Um, and yeah, two, before like TNG did it all the time too. So it's oh like yeah, this is yeah, sort of prototype of like restoring people and yeah, turning you, them into kids. Turn into rascals. The other thing is, I don't buy them deciding not to stay young. I know that that was kind of like the yeah the meaningful moment of like, no, we live like a good life. We don't need to do it right. again. But no one is gonna trade away their uh, uh, an opportunity to be young again. I don't buy that. Well, spoilers, I guess, for the end of Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Uh, that when he when what happens to him happens. He chooses to like have a natural like lifespan instead of adding on time I'm like no add on time if you're gonna like come on no. so yeah i, I agree with that you. for him but also the fact that he decided for her was kind of annoying yeah that's that is definitely an artifact of the day. yeah weirdly though they do kind of start making out and then the camera cuts away so i mean like time there was we're both young and good looking again yeah. and we're not, never gonna look like this again so uh-huh. uh, fill in the blank what you think they did yeah <laughs> that's Man. great yeah no it, it was it, it's funny because it was never you know there was no oh this is the fi- final episode or anything like that so there was no no reason for this to be the last one but uh it, I it feels it's kind like of interesting good. like a little poetic maybe to go out with the first enterprise captain yeah, in that's its way I mean. it's like it's, yeah it's got a nice little cap to it in some ways well, um, that is all of Star Trek, the animated series. We've now covered <laughs> all of it. Nine hours later. <laughs> uh, it is something, like I mentioned, is often overlooked. So I do encourage people, if you have any fondness for the original series, you really need to check out the animated series. And, and uh, you can take it you know, more seriously than a typical Saturday morning cartoon. It does have a lot of substance there, and it is just as legitimate as any other Star Trek show. I would not have figured that out if it wasn't for this man, Aaron Harvey, who is uh, taking the time to <laughs> celebrate the show with us. As we approach uh, Star Trek's return to animation oh, in a few weeks. Yes. So Aaron, I uh, definitely want to ask you about Star Trek Lower Decks. Are you excited to see Star Trek get animated again? I was excited to see it, hear about an animated series. And I'll walk you through like my sort of roller coaster of, of how I felt about it. It was just like, yeah, yay, animation. It's like, oh, it's a comedy. I have literally spent half of my life trying to convince people that mm-hmm. animated Star Trek isn't a joke. And now it is literally a joke. You know, yeah. it was like, I just was really not sure how to process that. And then it was like Rick and Morty, a show that I never could get into. And like, all right. Um, and so it was just like, you know, I, I I'm not going to be those people who are like, I hate it right away, you know, just and not give it a chance. But it was like, I wasn't like jumping up and down thrilled. And people would ask me, and I was just like, yeah, that sounds great. I just didn't want to like give a whole lot of detail because I was afraid I was going to spiral into sounding like, you know, I didn't want this to happen. Um, And then in the meantime, in between that, I did a Star Trek improvised or an improvised Star Trek show, which in improv, no matter what you do, there's it's going to be funny because you're making up on the spot. (laughs) And uh, our show is called Night Shift, and we were the – there's a, a regular show at Impro Theater here in Los Angeles called The Improvised Generation. So it's the USS McGinley. It's a galaxy-class starship, and we were the night shift, the people who boldly went – or, no, or boldly go where no one's gone before 7 a.m. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a little bit more of like a funny vibe to it to start with. And you know, so as we started doing things, I'm like, oh – 
this can still be Star because we really wanted it to be Star Trek. We were all Star Trek fans. We didn't want it to be like making fun of Star Trek, mm-hmm. but there is humor built into that. And so I think as I went through that, I'm like, oh, okay, you can still have a very Star Trek show and still have it be funny. Mm-hmm. And then seeing the trailer that just came out, I'm like, except for a few things, like, yeah, this is. I can totally see this. And there was a line in there that's like, we live on a spaceship. No one is dying from a spear wound. It's like something that could have came out of our show. You know, it was just like, so I'm like, okay, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. There's some things that like, you know, the singing, the blast shield song, which is very funny, but it feels very humor that would happen between Buffy and world war three, but not after world war, like in their, their universe. It doesn't seem like it was that kind of humor. I, I would right. probably have landed on more of a British, um, what is it, sort of like humor related to the situation, situational humor, as opposed to like the, I don't know, office, workplace slash, you know, goofy. But I, I think it's going to be good. I just, it, 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 right now, everybody needs something that's a little bit lighter anyway. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think we need some humor. So. Uh, and for all the people who said that Star Trek is too dark, this is the exact opposite of that. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah in so, a lot I mean, of ways, it, it should be refreshing because it will be yeah. uh, a it'll be a big shift away from Discovery and Picard, and um, a, a lot of the aesthetics are so spot on to what a lot of people were really asking for. With like mm-hmm. they want a post Nemesis, uh, very Rick Bermanish looking era, and uh, yeah. They're they're gonna get that with this. Yeah, it all feels very of the universe, and you watch it, and you're like, okay, the ship looks realistic, the the stuff that you know, it's all you know, cartoonized, but it's sort of like what they did with the the animated series, the original. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping they do a time travel episode where they end up with in Kirk's time, and then it's using that style, which I think would be really hilarious yeah. to have. Like the two I would be super episodes. into that. Yeah, I don't know if they're gonna happen, but it would be really funny. I um I think I guess it remains to be seen when we may get this more out of trailers as to what the dramatic component will be like how deeply yeah. they'll dive into that I think there'll be some but I have no idea how much yeah I, yeah that, you know you I can hope that do a good bit yeah I mean I would think that there'd be it can still be funny and then there can still be heart it doesn't have to be like maybe it's not the most dramatic thing but it could be more of the this person is always scared to go on a away mission and then we finally got him to go on an away mission and he's not as scared anymore you know there could be that kind of drama that sure. isn't necessarily like the ship's gonna blow up or something so but uh aaron what i, I really appreciate about just listening to you in podcasts and and following you on social media a little bit is that uh you're a very like fair like judge of star trek whenever like you're you'll critique them you'll talk about like things you don't like but you never do it in like this like hateful negative way, and you're always like very supportive of like the creative people that go into that. And uh, I I look up to that. I tr- I try to take a similar approach when I'm discussing this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I I mean I also being a graphic designer and somebody who's I mean you know I technically work now on Star Trek things like not mm-hmm. the show but background pieces or I mean uh, the the world. Um, you know they're they're people just like us. I mean, these are, they're not like some weird entity that doesn't have a life that is just like cranking out Star Trek. I mean, these are people who have, you know, families and it is an example. Like one person said, you know, I hope everybody on discovery loses their job. 
I'm just like, you really do? Because like, think of all the people involved in that show who have families and stuff. And I, I had that conversation with somebody and I, towards the end, I think I kind of got them to think about like, you might not like it, but wishing someone to lose their job is kind of horrible. And you apparently aren't watching the show that you supposedly love because that, <laughs> that is not a Star Trek sort of response. Yeah. Right. I, that's why, like, I never even want to, like, talk about shows I don't like, like, saying, like, <laughs> I hope they get canceled. Because, like, yeah. no, like, a lot of people will lose, like, I don't watch right. the Orville, but I have zero yeah. desire to see it get canceled. Like, a lot of people are, right. you know, working on that show, hoping that it runs for seven, eight seasons yeah. and they can put their kids through college. So, yep. but so Star Trek those, are the, uh, those are the Star Trek TV. ideals we have to try and live up to. Yeah. I don't know that I'm always uh, perfect on it, but, you know, I, I try. <laughs> None of us are. I mean, I'm sure I've said something that's, like, cringy at some point about, you know, about the show or a show or whatever. But, yeah. Well, that's the point of a Star Trek. That's what, like what uh, Kirk said to the Megans and the Magics of Megas 2 is that we've learned to do better. We've learned to improve ourselves, and we will continue to do that. And don't Aaron, have to disassemble ourselves like Bem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time you. and talking about this with us. It was a blast. Great having you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And and thank you, thank you for the book. Everyone should pick it up if you like <laughs> the animated series. It is essential reading. It is beautifully laid out. And uh, as far as uh, moving forward, uh, me and Dave will be back next week to talk about Star Trek Comic Con at home. I'm going to get some Lower Decks info and probably some Discovery Season 3 stuff. And uh, shortly after that, we'll be covering Lower Decks uh, week to week. And uh, Aaron, I just want to thank you again and uh, say goodbye. Uh, Everyone uh, (laughs) listening and watching, live long and prosper, y'all. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at txtrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.